You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod here with my co-host, Emily Friedner, and our very special guest for tonight, Dr. Shana Coburn, a postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins. We are very excited to have you here with us tonight, Shana. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So tonight we're going to talk about a very, very important topic, treating the minds and bodies of patients and families living with celiac disease. Now, this is a very, very important topic to talk about because getting diagnosed with celiac disease isn't just a, a condition where you're going to take a pill or have surgery and have it cured tomorrow. It's something that's a lifelong commitment to the gluten-free diet. So it means completely changing the way that we live our lives which can take a psychological effect on the patient, but it can also take a very strong psychological toll on families. So we're very excited to have Dr. Coburn here to, to talk us through this and what families can expect after a diagnosis. So where should we start? For me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the first thing that I would say is that um, this conversation is really great because there are so many different things about celiac disease that can be very psychologically challenging, but this conversation still doesn't replace treatment. So I, I'm giving information and tips here, but I definitely encourage anyone listening um, to consider seeing a mental health professional if you have any concerns that you'd like to discuss a little bit further um, to look into getting treatment. But I think really one of the first things that come up is when people are struggling psychologically. Um, so we have difficulties that can come up before people are diagnosed, at the time of their diagnosis with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, and then trying to maintain a gluten-free diet after they've been diagnosed. And there are unique challenges that come up with each different experience that people face along that process. So you're, t you're talking about, so before they're diagnosed with celiac disease, would it be that they, that it's actually a symptom of the disease or it's just um, like a depression because they're feeling sick all the time? It's probably a combination, right? So we've, we know that in general, people with gastrointestinal illnesses and distress tend to have higher rates of anxiety and other mental health issues. It might be as high as 50% of people who have these kinds of physiological challenges also have psychological challenges. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why we think that could be. Some of it is that we just don't know what's going on, and that can be very distressing, um, both because we, we don't know what's happening, but also because it's socially very difficult and embarrassing to navigate if you're having um, gastrointestinal symptoms. But also many other symptoms. Shana, that come it's up okay. With you can say diarrhea. <laughs> well, there's more than that, though, right? So sure, diarrhea. But there's all these other embarrassing things that come up, right? There's the fear of getting sick in public. There's the fear of having gas. You know, all kinds of things that yeah. can come up. Um, sometimes it's just the distraction of feeling pain and discomfort in your body, and it's distracting. But we also know that there's probably more going on than just that. 
Um, um, you know, this is really interesting that you're talking about. I never thought about the rate of anxiety being that high in, in patients with a GI issue. Um, sorry, mom, for bringing this up. But the other day, my mom was visiting and she was about to go for a massage and she had been having stomach problems all morning. And she was so nervous and anxious about going to get a massage and having to like run to the bathroom in the middle of it. And, you know, was just so worried about, about that interaction. Um, and, you know, just thinking back about my own life and being diagnosed, how I always had to plan to be in a place where there was a bathroom. Such a good point. And I, yep. And same here. <laughs> and you know, and you, things like worrying about if there's toilet paper. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's things you don't want to have to worry about, but that people worry about if you're dealing with that. That's just a practical piece of coping with uncontrolled symptoms. That's such a good point. I can also imagine that, you know, because celiac has so many symptoms, it can present with, you know, 300 different symptoms. The time before diagnosis, I imagine that can be really stressful for families, just also not knowing what's wrong and going to so many different doctors and um, just sometimes wondering, is anything actually wrong with me? I remember thinking that um, as well, like thinking that time and time again of being told nothing's wrong with you. Um, that you kind of wonder if you're kind of imagining it or something. So I imagine there's all sorts of stress that goes along with that as well. Definitely. I think one of the most interesting experiences for me was being diagnosed with celiac disease while I was in graduate school. So while I was learning all about psychology and therapy and how all of that relates to physical health, I was going through physical problems myself and I think because of the field that I'm in, I convinced myself that a lot of my physical symptoms were because of stress and because basically blaming it on myself and saying I was causing it. Um, and I have encountered so many people since getting diagnosed who have been told for years potentially that it's all in their head. And mm -hmm. that's very damaging to uh, kind of blame yourself for everything. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really common thread in people who were not diagnosed early on and who's, you know, they say the average time of diagnosis is nine to 11 years. And just that's such a long period of time to not know what's making you sick. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things as being, being in the position as a psychologist is that I have sometimes been the first person to bring up testing, you know, so sometimes families will come to a psychologist or a therapist or, or just any other kind of more um, emotional therapist kind of person saying that they're having these issues and don't necessarily think of the possibility that there's a medical issue. Um, and because the reality is for, for a lot of people who do have unexplained symptoms, it might just be because stress does have a really strong effect in our body. But for people who are undiagnosed with celiac and gluten sensitivity, it's completely different, and it just shows that we can't make that assumption. What about for um, for kids with eating disorders? Is is could it be celiac disease in as opposed to an eating disorder when the kids are just afraid to eat because they feel sick? That's a really good question, and I, I can't pretend to be an expert in feeding disorders, but um, the, the small amount that I know about that is that, yes, there are people who, you know, at young ages show up 
you know, to, to medical care because they're not eating very well. They're considered picky eaters. You know, there's the term failure to thrive where a child isn't gaining weight as expected. Um, and definitely that's something that should be on the radar is, you know, is it a behavioral or emotional thing or is there potentially something physiological going on. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons why kids might not be eating very well at a young age. Um, So it might not just be celiac disease. There are all kinds of medical causes for feeding disorders that I don't really know enough about to speak on. Um, But personally, I know that once I was diagnosed, my mother told me that as a baby, for as long as she could remember, I was always a picky eater and a careful eater and, you know, I would eat in small increments and not want to eat too much at once. And it, it's interesting to think back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it makes me wonder if maybe I had celiac my whole life, you know, and just no one realized it. Right. Absolutely. So let's start talking about once a child um, is diagnosed with celiac disease or, or a gluten-related condition, um, what should the family do or what type of uh, counseling should they seek to make sure that the transition is an easy one for the child? Uh, the, the point of diagnosis is a stressful experience, no matter how relieved, you know, relieved the family might feel um, to have an answer. It's very bitter. You do have an actual explanation for what's going on. But on the other hand, it's a permanent, life-changing diagnosis. Um, The way that a family navigates that is very individual. So there are a lot of different tips that I can give, but the big thing I would recommend is for families to think about their dynamic and what their challenges are that they're facing and trying to problem-solve to come up with solutions that help them the best. And that's that's a steep learning curve. I think one of the biggest things is for families to give themselves a, a little bit of a break and to realize that they're not going to be perfect at this right away. Um, but generally speaking, what I would say is that educating yourself and getting involved with other people socially who have gluten sensitivity, you know, celiac disease included, that makes a big difference because people can learn from one another, you know, just basic practical tips that you wouldn't necessarily read in a, an article or a pamphlet. It's kind of really handy for people to be able to start coping with it. Um, so that is sort of addressing the logistics of going gluten-free. But at the same time, there's also coping that has to go on. So just the emotional toll of realizing that there's this diagnosis is something that needs to be addressed a little bit. And it depends on the person and depends on the family. Everyone reacts differently to this sort of thing. But it really can be a loss. You know, I've described it to people as legitimate grief because you are losing the hopes of whether it's your child or yourself or, you know, another family member, you're losing that possibility that that person will be completely normal and completely healthy. And so it's it's allowing yourself to grieve how, however you need to. That's a really, really interesting point. How How is that the grief process different, do you think, for a child versus the parents? 
Uh, I think it depends on the age of the child. So with young children, they probably don't really understand what that means at all. And that's okay. In that situation, they will be understanding more and more about the situation as they get older. So I don't know if you call it grief at the point of diagnosis exactly for them. There's an adjustment, but it's a lot more um, behavioral. It's a lot more focused on the here and now and what, what you know, mom and dad are letting us eat or not eat and that kind of thing. Um, As kids get, if they're diagnosed at a young age, we do know, you know, there's not much research out there on this. We're trying to build research to understand a little more about what this experience is like. But what we do think is that when there are young children getting diagnosed, the prognosis emotionally for children is quite good. And actually parents tend to bear the burden more than the children. So the good news is that if your young child is getting diagnosed, they will adjust pretty well because they really won't have known much else. Unfortunately, as a parent, it's still very stressful. Um, And so for a young child, it might be years down the road that they suddenly kind of start to realize, suddenly or gradually start to realize that this is a permanent situation for them and that they're not like other kids in this specific regard. With older kids, there's a little bit more grief involved. Um, Again, it depends on the child. So a lot of children, the same as you would expect when there are deaths, when there are other kinds of losses in life, many children will be very frank about it and just discuss it, but maybe in small little bits and pieces. Some children won't want to talk a lot about it. And all of that is okay. And the most important thing is for parents to make themselves available to children you know, to answer questions and to help them however they kind of want to. And that may just mean not really talking that much about it, and that's okay, too. Um, The biggest challenge is with teenagers because at that age, they care a lot about fitting in with other kids. So it's not the grief you would necessarily expect of, wow, my life has changed forever, they may not necessarily think of that as the first challenge that comes up. The other, you know, the main thing would would be that they can't go eat pizza with their friends. They can't go do sleepovers and have all these great snacks to eat without worrying about it. And so that can lead to a lot of challenges in teenagers following the diet successfully. Um. So there's a compliance issues that they'll they'll they'd rather cheat than not fit in. Yeah, I mean that's the norm. Not all teenagers will be what we call non-adherent to the diet, um, but it is pretty common that at that age, that's when children are most likely to cheat on their diet. What tips can you offer for parents who have who have a child who they think might be cheating on the diet to to fit in with their friends? Well, it depends on the age again. So one of the really important things when it comes to the diet is parents doing their best to monitor their children's diet. Um, And this, you know, starts maybe in 
elementary school and middle school where they begin to have their children learn how to ask questions, learn how to look at labels, but really the parents are doing the majority of the work. And as kids get older, they can be relinquishing that control bit by bit as as kids are showing and demonstrating that they're a little bit more responsible. Similar to other responsibilities like going out without parents, you know, driving a car, things like that, it requires careful monitoring by parents, um, but also recognizing that mistakes will happen and cheating may happen. And to some degree, it is the, the teenager's life. So right. it's it's a balancing act, and it really does depend on the situation, medically speaking, that, that your child is facing. Um, in general, if you're suspecting that your child is cheating on the diet, the most important thing is to not hover over them, you know, like we call it a helicopter parent where you're watching everything they do and scrutinizing everything. That is not going to help. So trying to open up the channels of communication, trying to be non-judgmental and supportive, but also firm about what your expectations are, the same as you would in a parenting in any other capacity, is the way to really try your best to minimize how much your teenager might be cheating on their diet. Um, but it's, it's not ever going to be perfect, and it's important for parents to recognize that that's the case. That's a very good point, that perfection is not always there. And sometimes, I would add, sometimes kids don't want to talk to their parents about them not following their diet. So sometimes it's finding other trustworthy individuals, usually you know, usually adults, um, that can take on some kind of mentorship role. They mm-hmm. may be able to communicate and find out a little bit more you know, in a supportive way. So it might be a teacher, it might be a family member who's on the younger side, but an adult, could be a therapist. Um, they may also help a little bit if, if it's just not working between the kid and the parent. That's a very good point. Um, it definitely does help to have a mentor for the child. I think it's much easier to have to have conversations sometimes with people who aren't your parents or who aren't like with you every single second of the day. Absolutely. So going back to talking about interactions with, with family members, um, something that we hear a lot from, from parents is that they don't know how to talk about their child being diagnosed with a disease. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling with the right words to tell, to tell grandparents and siblings and, you know, their extended families because they're worried that they're going to see the child as diseased um, as opposed to, you know, Hey, being gluten-free is, is going to make them healthy. So how do you, what advice do you have for, for parents who need um, some help with discussing the disease with their their extended family and friends yeah the conversation to try to to share information with family members can get really hairy because you're dealing with a lot of emotion you know so you've got the emotion involved with family members and relationships between everybody you're also dealing with the fact that a lot of people attach love to food and so you know, especially grandparents and, you know, other family members who 
might be expecting to be able to cook a big meal for for your your child or for yourself it's it can be insulting sometimes to, for them to maybe not understand why you might not be able to eat their food or why your child might not be able to eat their food and the best recommendation that i can give is trying to pay attention to the level of interest that that family member has in what's going on and their ability to understand the nuances of what you're trying to explain to them. So it might be the case that with your 95-year-old great-grandmother, the most you can do is describe to them, oh, you know, Johnny can't really eat things that have flour in them and some other foods like that. It it hurts that his body, his body gets you know, doesn't do a very good job with that, and he has to be really careful, so he's got this other food. You know, that might be the most that you can do with some people. But then there might be other family members who are extremely supportive, who want to know more. And in that situation, one thing that I think is very helpful is directing them to resources that aren't just yourself, because it's easy to sound like a crazy person if you're describing every little detail all at once to somebody who's never heard it before. You know, talking about, oh, you can't use the same funds and any porous material has to get thrown away. And it, it, it's a lot. And so having educational materials and websites to back you up might help a little bit so that that family member can go and look at that stuff as they're interested and as they want to and start to try to understand where you're coming from. Um, but the big, the big issue here is that a lot of these people might still try to prepare food for the person who has celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, and that is really an individual decision to make on whether to trust the food that they're preparing. Um, I think the, the best thing to do is to try to always show gratitude for someone making an effort um, and trying to offer more information if it seems like they're curious about it. But for some people, if they're very sensitive, they may not be willing to trust the, the food that somebody is making, no matter how careful they think they're being or they say they're being. And that is something that um, is a personal decision that you and your family have to decide. And I think that to some degree... It's a judgment call to try to decide if you think that that person has done a good enough job and also how risky you think that situation is. So for me personally, you know, I have celiac disease. I am generally pretty sensitive, but very small amounts probably won't hurt me too much. And so not that I try to be exposed to it, but in a situation where I know someone described to me all the ingredients they use, that they, you know, used a fresh cutting board and made sure that there was no flour floating in the air. I might choose to have a couple bites of something that they've made. And maybe if I'm okay, then the next time I can maybe try it again. Um, but but I have the advantage of having a reaction that that's pretty obvious, um, but that's not so violent that it's incapacitating most of the time. So not for, that's not the case for everybody. And again, it's, it's, it has to be very personal. You have to decide how far you're willing to go. And it might just be that always bringing food, offering to bring food, having backup snacks, 
if you go to a family event, that those are just going to be a necessity for you. And the best you can do is try to just express your love in other ways with people. So I would say that I completely agree that I would react the same way as as you just described um, in a situation where somebody had really tried to make food for me. But so my my three-year-old son was diagnosed with celiac last Friday. And now I'm going through the steps of what would I do for him? And I think right. that my my feelings towards what I would let him eat are completely different from what I would do for myself, which I don't know is necessarily the right answer, but it's really made me reevaluate it because I'm so afraid of him, of him getting sick. We, I mean, we, he was only on heavy amounts of gluten for a few weeks um, and he was so physically ill that I never want right. to see him like that ever again. And so now I'm paranoid about it. And right. it's a completely new, um, it's a completely new just way of life, having to watch everything that goes into his mouth. Yeah, well, and I'm sure you're so much more protective of him than even of yourself. That's just kind of the nature of being a parent. You know, I think that that one of the one of the things that I try to encourage people to think about is not that I would in any way encourage people to be negligent or you know lax about gluten-free diets. But at the same time, you know, what's the worst thing that would happen if there was a small exposure? It probably would be fun, and people with really really high sensitivities and really violent reactions, it could be really bad. It could be really damaging physically. But chances are pretty good that he would recover and that he would be okay, and it would be a learning experience. And... That's important, too. You know, I think my fear also comes from just, like, for, for an adult, we can control our, our, our urges to go to the bathroom a little bit better than, than a child who was, you know, maybe just potty trained. Um, right. And so I think that it's, it's a little bit easier if I had a reaction to be able to deal with it, whereas for him, I think it's a lot harder. Right. Well, and again, I think... It's true, but I think that the question of what's the worst that would happen is it comes up again, right? So, right, hmm, might be a big mess, might be embarrassing, <laughs> might might yeah, be inconveniencing, sure. you know, might get in the way of daily routine. But but in the long run, he's going to be okay. In the long run, he's going to be okay, and I think the way that you react as a parent will serve as a model for him to learn how to cope with this because. Until we get to a point of a cure, of a vaccine, of a pill, whatever it might be that comes along, kids will have to accept and learn from the fact that they will have reactions to things. And so he's, it's actually really in a strange, twisted way, it's probably good that he's having a reaction to something (laughs) because he can learn, okay, now what do I do? How do I deal with the fact that I'm not feeling good? And obviously this is a gradual process, but if you're able to stay calm and, you know, problem solve and be as prepared as you can be and but, like, kind of have to think on the fly, those are all really good skills for kids to see their parents use. So this is a good parenting situation for me. So exactly. You can think of it as an opportunity. (laughs) I mean, it's the same with any kind of situation. If you protect your child from every single threat that comes along, Learn from, you know, 
the bad things that can come across, uh, you know, their lives. And kids have to learn from some of those things. They have to learn from their own mistakes, and sometimes they have to see their parents making mistakes and learning from that themselves. And so sometimes it's just narrating that for them and showing them, okay, this isn't so good. Let's see what we can do. What are what are we going to do next time? You know, what what might help us in this situation? And those are really valuable lessons that we learn in all kinds of parts of our lives, not, you know, not just specifically for people with celiac, but in every way, there are always going to be things that come up. Life is just never going to go perfectly. That's a very good point. So right after I found out that that my son had been diagnosed, one of the first things that I did was I emailed his school, um, the director of his preschool, because he's... Um, they do an enrichment program in the afternoon and he's in the cooking uh, enrichment class, um, huh. which <laughs> most of the things they make are not gluten-free. And so right. I was very stressed out about this. And so I emailed them and this was Friday afternoon and she set up a meeting for all of his teachers um, at the entire school. So he has two main teachers, two enrichment teachers, and then there are teacher aides. And Monday morning at 8.30, we were all sitting down in a room um, with the director of the preschool and um, her deputy director to have a complete plan for Brandon, for how to handle him, what what he could eat. They had all of the packages with all of the snacks that they offer to all the kids. And I'm I'm so lucky that the only thing that he couldn't have were goldfish and graham crackers, which I brought in um, gluten-free graham crackers for him to, you know, so he could also eat graham crackers. And while gluten-free goldfish have been discontinued, um, there there are Mm -hmm. other um, cheese puffs that I brought in so that he could have a similar um, snack. So that was really easy. But what I was so surprised by is that the enrichment teachers, they just wanted to learn. Um, They they knew what gluten-free was and they've encountered other um, people in their lives who have celiac, but they're like, bring us cookbooks, um, give us recipes, you know, teach us. We want to make recipes that Brandon can make. So I bought a whole bunch of cookbooks and I bought them a five pound bag of gluten-free flour Um, and, you know, I was just so surprised at how willing to adapt they were, um, which I know a lot of families experience the complete opposite reaction where the schools are not willing to adapt and make um, changes for the kids that easily. So it's definitely really helped me as a parent feel more secure and, and, you know, just happy knowing that that Brandon is going to school and being able to participate. They even um, ordered loaves of challah. He goes to um, a Jewish preschool so that on Friday he can have challah with everyone at Shabbat. Wow. That's impressive. A good situation. (laughs) That is fabulous. Um, but so it was definitely a good example of how schools can do it, can can handle children with celiac or any food allergy for that matter um, in a really good and positive way. Yeah. Yeah, something oh, that – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Something that I always want to put out there for, for people is to just be aware of the fact that you know, having gluten sensitivity does qualify you for being considered to have a disability um, in school. And so kids who are in public school are eligible to get a plan, like sort of like what you talked about, to sit down and come up with alternatives and things to make sure that you're keeping your child healthy. Um, and, And the school, if it's a public school, 
they're required to have a conversation with you about that and put together a five, it's called a 504 plan. Um, and, and that can be really helpful, especially for the schools where maybe they're not quite as on top of it as your school. You know, in those situations, that's a good thing because you can actually have something in writing that shows what you're expecting to be done. And you can, if you need to, you can use that to enforce, you know, things that maybe the school is being lax on. So that's very helpful for people to just at least have a jumping off point to feel like they're a little in trouble. That's a really good point. And the Celiac Disease Foundation has sample 504 plans on their website at celiac.org. And they're really, really helpful. It gives you all the information you need to um, to fill out and take to your school. Yeah, that's really, that's really valuable for a lot of people. And, you know, the challenge is that if a child is at a private school or, you know, obviously in after school programs and other things like that, there's a little less control there. But I do think that there's so much more awareness now than even just a few years ago. It might be riddled with misinformation, but there's at least some awareness of what gluten-free is and what celiac disease is. And so hopefully that will be helpful for kids growing up in that generation. That's so true. Um, one of the things that we hear a lot is parents who feel guilt over giving their child a disease, since celiac is a genetic condition. What advice do you have for parents who are feeling this guilt? Yes, guilt. <laughs> you know, so, I, you know, the first thing I'll say is in terms of the the genetics of celiac disease. Again, I'll use the disclaimer that I'm not a geneticist. I'm not, you know, versed in that. But we really don't fully understand the genetics behind celiac disease. We know that there's a vulnerability that's inherited, but it's not that simple. You know, as many people know, just having, you know, some of the genetic makeup that we think puts people at risk for celiac disease doesn't mean that you'll develop it um, or not. So, Again, similar to dealing with risks that come along in life, as parents, you know, parents pass on all sorts of things to their children just because their children are growing up in their household, they're part of them, you know, they're, they wouldn't be who they are without the whole package. And so we really don't understand what pieces of genetics and the environment and all of those things end up triggering celiac disease in some people and not in others. But it's very possible that there are some good protective things that come along with that as well, just in ways that are really hard for us to understand. You know, there's some, and again, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but there are some accounts where people think that people with celiac disease might be more resistant to certain um, waterborne, you know, gastrointestinal illnesses because, if they're sick all the time, then nothing sticks in their body, you know? So there, there are actually things that we don't understand that might be good about inheriting the genes that maybe can't come along with celiac disease. Um, but I think also I, I've actually encountered more parents who feel guilty about their actions. So if they did something wrong, not, not, not just the genetics, but, you know, parents who maybe worry that, either during pregnancy they didn't do something right with prenatal care or in the way that they presented food and 
and other environmental things to their child that maybe they have triggered it. Um, and the the message that I'll give is that we really just don't know enough about what causes it um, to to understand what parents are doing and what leads to celiac or not. Parents are doing the best they can, and something like celiac disease develops somewhat out of a cluster of a bunch of different things. And so we really don't know what the right thing is to prevent celiac disease, or even if someone wanted to try to trigger it. We we really don't know. And so I think parents need to give themselves a break and just realize that every family, every parent has things that might not be the perfect scenario that their child ends up getting exposed to or ends up inheriting. And it could be a range of things. And honestly, I'll, what I say to people, and this is sort of my silver lining perspective compared to so many other illnesses, especially disease does have one very specific, simple trigger, you know, one protein. And if someone is gluten-free there aren't really any other medications needed to manage celiac disease. If we are able to keep gluten out of the diet, most people recover and are much healthier. And because of that, you know, the, the risks that maybe people are experiencing, the problems that a child could face by having untreated celiac disease, those risks go back pretty much to normal as far as we know. And this, this is true for as far as we understand for psychological things. So kids who have anxiety, depression, other kinds of challenges before they get diagnosed and even during diagnosis, they're more likely to cope better in their lives down the road. So getting diagnosed makes a huge difference because we have a treatment. The treatment is a gluten-free diet. It's not always the easiest, but maybe down the road there'll be an even better treatment that allows you know, a little bit lifestyle. But in comparison to many, many other chronic conditions, I would I would argue to, to look at the bright side and think about how fortunate we are that we know what it is that triggers celiac disease in terms of, you know, our symptoms. So I want to jump to um, other potential conflict areas for, for people diagnosed with celiac and Emily, sorry to put you on the spot about your, your recent wedding, but, you know, Emily is a newlywed and, you know, something that can, can come up is when, you know, you're, you're planning a big festive event and the food when, you know, the parties involved might not be able to eat anything. So Emily, tell us what were your conversations like in, in planning the wedding and, and making sure things were safe for you and for guests who were gluten-free, what were those conversations like and were, were there any problems? Well, I'm really fortunate in that um, my husband is super understanding and he um, basically left all the decisions to me, which was really nice. Um, But I also have a very big um, Italian family. So they really wanted, um, and it's funny because my mom also um, is gluten-free, but she wanted to kind of make the rest of her family happy. And so she definitely wanted to have a pasta dish on the menu and something that felt really Italian. And then, um, you know, I knew, you know, guests like you were coming and and myself included, and I wanted to make sure that there were things that we could eat also. So for me personally, it was sort of, I knew exactly who was coming and who was eating gluten-free. And there were about, you know, five people all together. Um, And I knew that all of us were pretty 
educated about the diet and could kind of, you know, see what things might, maybe they shouldn't eat. And I was able to talk to people beforehand and, and give a heads up about what items would be gluten-free and what, what um, items wouldn't. But it was definitely kind of like, I was very concerned that maybe someone would get served the wrong plate. So um, what I did was made sure that my caterer made, um, we had three separate dishes at the wedding. We had a chicken, a steak and a pasta. So I made sure that all of the steak and all of the chicken was gluten-free completely, not just individual dishes. Um, and then, of course, the pasta wasn't. So I was able to say, you know, if you get the chicken or the steak, you're good, but obviously don't eat the pasta. So the one thing I didn't compromise on, though, was the cake. I definitely had a gluten-free cake <laughs> because obviously I was eating that. Um, so, yeah, it just for me, it was kind of we're going to do a mix of both and just, you know, I was pretty aware of what was what and tried to make my guests aware also. So, um, but then again, like you, Vanessa, there are completely gluten-free weddings, which I actually wish I could have done, but um, it was, that was not available to me. <laughs> I just put my foot down. There was no understanding about it. <laughs> Out of curiosity, what did your guests have to say about your cake? Um, they actually loved it. Everyone, there's a really good bakery. I'm from upstate New York. So there's a bakery, um, in Albany, New York that makes gluten-free cakes and they're phenomenal. And every kind of family event that we have, we always get one. And I actually think if I didn't say anything, probably no one would have noticed, but everyone knows that I'm gluten-free and I was eating the cake. So of course people are asking if it was gluten-free. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really good. So I looked to see if you were eating it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really it was cool. Really, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, it was very good. Think of all those people who maybe thought that gluten free was always awful. To, right. You know, who who maybe got a chance to eat something and realize, oh wow, there's actually really good food out there. I know, and I love when people have that reaction because it's just you know so much of it now is so delicious, and sometimes you don't even notice things are gluten free, which is kind of the reaction that you want your friends and family to have when when you have to serve them something gluten free. So. So speaking of great bakeries, we had planned to talk about one of our news topics tonight is the rise in the dedicated gluten-free bakeries popping up. So let's talk about some of our favorite other bakeries. Um, Well, I love, if you're in the D.C. area and Adams Morgan, um, Rise Bakery. Um, They're completely gluten-free and they have a lot of like breads and um, cakes and muffins and bagels and things like that. So if you're in that area, croissants, yes, they're so good. So um, I highly recommend that one. And the Red Bandana Bakery, just up the road in Bethesda from Rise Bakery, um, they're opening their own storefront in December and have amazing, they, they dub themselves the Happy Healthy uh, Gluten-Free Bakery. Um, they use a lot of alternative grains for their products, and they're super delicious. Mm, that sounds great. I also just stumbled upon, so my family recently moved to um, to New Jersey, just outside of New York City. And the other day, we found out there was a, a gluten-free bakery very, very, very close to us. And we go in, and it's a bakery full of sourdough bread that was all gluten-free, these huge baguettes and rolls and, and pies and tarts. It's called Luce's Bakery. And you may oh see they, um, they have mixes that you just add water to and you can make loaves of bread out of. But I was so shocked. I, I've never walked into a bakery and seen like loaves of sourdough gluten-free bread. Yeah, that was how a was very, that? Very close. It's so good. <laughs> oh does God. it taste like, can you notice a difference or does it really taste like traditional sourdough? It tasted like sourdough bread. 
Wow, that's awesome. It was really delicious. You'll have to and mail me some. Have, <laughs> I will mail you some, or you can just come visit. Okay. Um, and then we also found another bakery called the Squirrel and the Bee, which is it's also very close to us in Milburn, New Jersey, and another dedicated gluten-free bakery, delicious breads and every type of dessert that you can that you can think of, muffins and pastries, um, and just a really, really delightful place and cafe to go to. Well, there definitely are, I mean, popping up all over. I I think you can probably find one now in a lot of major cities. So I think that's really exciting, too, to be able to just go into a bakery or a cupcake shop or something and get, like, a gluten-free treat or something to bring to a birthday party if you're not a baker. So I think that's a really exciting development. Absolutely. Um, I also recently found a coffee shop near us that I walked in with my husband one day just to get coffee. And of course, I saw the words gluten free in the pastry um, case. And the entire top shelf was gluten free baked goods. And I've never seen that before at a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And this this particular um, coffee shop called Boxwood Coffee, they had found a, a bakery just outside of Pennsylvania called the Grain Exchange. And the products were so good, they decided to bring in a whole bunch of them. And they just always have gluten-free treats um, in the coffee shop. And it's so nice to be able to go in with friends and sit down for a cup of coffee and be able to get something to eat, too. So I really appreciated that. It's awesome. You know, it definitely helps my psychological well-being to be able to go with people and have a treat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Definitely. Just to have that freedom and to feel normal is huge. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. So, um, Sheena, do you just briefly want to tell us a little bit in closing about the psychological health training that you took part in back in February? Yeah. So, yeah, that was back in February. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so, you know, I, I feel fortunate that I was able to kind of be part of this training that um, has been put together at Children's National uh, along with the Celiac Disease Foundation. So while I was an intern at Children's National, I was able to help starting with the planning process of this and then was able to volunteer some time down the road to be able to see it through. Um, and it was a, an educational program designed to give information to medical professionals about the mental health aspects of celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. Um, And it was an opportunity for professionals to actually get formal continuing education credits to learn a little bit about um, kind of two different sides of it. One being recognizing the potential for needing to uh, screen people for celiac disease in the first place, but then then also understanding that that can be a very difficult process and starting to recognize some of the warning signs of um, people who need to getting mental support through, you know, therapists or even just a little bit of extra care by the medical providers giving a little bit more psychological awareness to people. And it was very well received. I got feedback from people um, for days afterwards, just reaching out and saying how, how great it was for them to learn a little bit about this and how little they had known before. And so I think it's, it's been really valuable to be able to put that together and make it, make it available to um, medical professionals and mental health professionals to get a little bit of specialized awareness um, in relation to celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. So 
the it was such a wonderful um, forum, and we had a, a huge group of um, participants that came live to Children's Hospital, and then a whole um, the, the program was live streamed so people could tune in from anywhere in the world and watch. And the materials are still available online. So if you are a medical professional or psychologist listening into this, um, you can still get continuing education um, credits. Uh, through ANOVA and through the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. Um, there's also a manual that we created uh, for the program um, that can also be downloaded, and we have links to both of those in our show notes. So, uh, Dr. Coburn, Shana, and I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight um, and for sharing so much wisdom for, for patients and families living with uh, gluten-related conditions. I think this was, this was really helpful for me personally, um, and I know that it will really help families in coping with, with these diagnoses. So thanks for joining us. Very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. We hope that everyone has a wonderful night, and we will talk to you next time. You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. 